0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Well It's good to be with everybody. Glad you're here. I'm excited to look at this passage with you, but let's pray, ask the Lord one more time for His help as we come before His Word. Our Father, uh, we always are so thankful that You are a speaking, communicating God, and Lord, truly the height of worship is to hear your voice and believe you. And so with that, we uh, actually tremble a little bit as we come before your word, Uh, not because of anything special in me, but because uh, properly understood, properly interpreted, Lord, we are hearing your word to us today, even now. And so we want to come uh, appropriately before you, ready to hear your word. So give us, give us humble hearts, Lord. Give us the Holy Spirit to help us. And please help me to teach this clearly and faithfully. So, Lord, we might hear you, believe you, and your word would have its way in us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you can tell, at least from the decorations, right, it's the Christmas season, And as Christians at the Christmas season, we love to celebrate, don't we, that Jesus has come. We love to celebrate how he has come. It's marvelous and it's amazing. Perhaps most important, it's essential that we grasp why he has come. Why? Why has he come? And not to make it too simplistic, but part of why Jesus has come is because you and I have a very serious problem. (laughs) Uh, you, You know, it's interesting to me. I think every religion, worldview, philosophy, every view of the world I've ever heard of, all of those voices, they all seem to admit one thing. There's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with us. Can you think of any major teacher or philosophy that looks out at the world, looks out at humanity and says, you know, this is great. It's just... Everything's the way it ought to be. You know, no one says that. We all, we all see something is horribly wrong, but what is it? What is it that's wrong? And that's where you start to come to very different answers, isn't it? Some say, what, uh, we're, not limited, we're not liberated enough from oppressive power structures. Others would say uh, we're not enlightened enough, we're not religious enough, we're not moral enough. We're not traditional enough. Wide variety of answers. But here we come to another, another place. Most voices seem to have something in common. Everybody agrees there's something wrong. We disagree on what. But every, every voice seems to believe not only there's something wrong, but they also believe we can fix it. We, we can fix it. If we would just liberate, educate, dominate, regulate, religify, enough. We could fix it. And here's where Jesus stands out remarkably, starkly. I want to hear Jesus on this point. Uh, Jesus once took some flack from religious leaders for not being ritualistic enough. And that inspired a response from him. He started to talk about what it is that defiles someone. And he said, it's not the outside that's the problem. What actually defiles you is different. Look at Mark 7, verse twenty. Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. It's curious, isn't it? If I had asked you, like starting the message, what you thought your biggest problem was, how many of you would have mentioned something out there? And if you took me kind of by surprise and asked me that, I'd probably think of something out there. And Jesus, Jesus confronts us with these words, doesn't he? He's not saying there aren't problems out there. That's not what he's saying. But what's your biggest problem? It's in here. Is that true? Are you your biggest problem? I believe it, my biggest problem is me. And you know what's so devastating about that message? If your heart is your problem, it proves to you that you can't fix the problem. If my heart is corrupted, self inward bent, inwardly bent, prideful, All those things are coming out of me. I don't even need anybody's help. That means, if if my very heart is corrupted, that means that not only can I not fix the problem, what I invent as the problem or how to fix it, that in itself will be the problem. Do you see? (laughs) Everything coming out of me is problem, which means I cannot save myself. I can't. We can't. So what now? Well, that's why Jesus came, isn't it? That's why he came. He came to fix the problem no one else can fix. So we're studying uh, through the book of Hebrews, and we're right in the middle of a section about how Jesus came to bring the new covenant. So there's a new and a better, more glorious, more wonderful way through which we can relate and fellowship with God and know Him. Just as a reminder, Hebrews is written to a congregation of marginalized, persecuted Jewish Christians. So they're suffering. They're discouraged, and in that suffering, they're tempted to leave their confession of Christ and go back to their old ways of worship. Let's just go back to the worship in the Mosaic Law. You know, you still could go to the temple. You could have the Levitical priesthood. You'd have the scriptures, and that would fix part of the outward problem they're experiencing, which would be the suffering. Some of that persecution might go away. But the author pleads with them, right, over and again, don't leave Jesus, and the author is so skillful because he argues to them from their favorite, most respected source. He's showing them from the Old Testament. He's showing them in the Mosaic Law. He's saying to them that the Mosaic Law itself tells you that it's not enough and you need more. Something better is coming. In fact, I, I, I wonder if you notice it. Uh, our writer today says something just amazing here in chapter 9. He's going to refer to that tabernacle of the Mosaic Covenant, right? You heard that in the two sections, the holy place, the most holy place. And uh, to be honest, right, sometimes that's tough stuff for you and I to understand. You're reading through Exodus, you're like, I don't get it. But the the author says here that as we ponder those truths about what that old Old Covenant tabernacle was like. Holy place, most holy place. Did you see what the author said? The author says that, is, that in that very revelation, the Holy Spirit is talking to you and he is showing you two main things. Number one, our problem. And number two, how only Jesus can fix it. The author here says that the tabernacle of the Old Testament of Exodus was about our problem and how Jesus heals it. So that's what we wanna see today, three main points today. Number one, the two rooms and our two problems. Number two, how Jesus rectifies those problems. Then number three, a little bit of how to respond. Okay, that's what we're gonna see today. Number one, two rooms and our two problems. Number two, how Jesus rectifies those problems. Number three, how we ought to respond. So here we go. Let's just try to follow the writer's argument. Look at chapter 9, verse 1, page 1005. The writer puts, uh, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Let's pause here just for a moment and remember some essentials. An earthly place of holiness. What does that remind you of about God? God is what? He's holy. He's holy. There's something remarkably different about the, the Christian God. He is set apart from creation. So, so there's a holiness in him being set apart, in him being the creator, right? And all the things that make him God his eternality, his sufficiency, his wisdom, his power oh, the power to be the creator. So he is both beautiful and terrifying as the creator God. He's holy. But holiness also speaks to his moral purity and perfection. And so here we find him both beautiful and also terrifying. He's terrifying in his moral perfection. And so God is holy, and that means if we are going to worship him, he's going to have to give regulations. He has regulations for worship. To worship God, it involves so many things, doesn't it? It involves being pleasing to Him. It involves knowing Him, what He's like, what He's about. It involves living for Him. And and how how are you going to know how to worship the holy God? He's going to tell you. This is how you worship me. God tells us how to worship Him. This is such an important truth. Do you ever want to be guilty of inventing God or what it means to worship Him? That is the way of the world. That is the lay of the land. That we would kind of just assume that what we kind of want and hope about God is true, and then we just kind of presume that how we're living is okay with Him. In that case, you're inventing your own God. And so, not, is that, not only is that futile and dangerous because it's false, but also because the real God takes that very personally. You've, you've just entered kind of the boxing ring on who's God. And when you invent him and make up new ways to follow him, you're looking at the holy God and saying, I'm here to replace you. That's not something you want to say to the holy and living God. And so God is just remembering these essentials. God is holy, and he alone gives regulations for how to know and worship him. And he did that in the Mosaic Covenant. And so the author now, in verses 1 to 10, wants to think with us about the two sections of the tabernacle and the activity that happened there. And that's just going to get to these two points he thinks the Holy Spirit of God is making, okay? Two rooms, holy place, most holy place, activities that happen there, and then the two points, all right? So here we go. Let's try to figure this out. You see chapter 9, verse 2. A tent was prepared. Again, this is not an REI backpacking tent, okay? This is the lavish, symbolic, glorious tabernacle of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, later in the temple as well. But he's thinking of that tabernacle in the Mosaic Covenant. A tent was prepared. It had two sections that we're thinking about here. The holy place, the most holy place. The first section, the holy place, you've got you've got the lampstand. And you, you've probably seen that. Read, read your study Bible. It's golden. Uh, it's it's burning with oil. And it's, it's symbolic of the light of God's presence with his people. You've got the lampstand. Then you've got the table of the bread of the presence. And there'd be... Two piles of of six loaves, okay, so 12. What does that remind you of? Well, it signifies God's people right there with God in the holy place, in the light of his presence. Then you get verse three, the author begins to think of the most holy place. Verse three, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. And he, be, he begins to mention what's there. You got in verse four, there's a golden altar. And if some of you are Old Testament experts, you're wondering, wait, is that the right place for the golden altar? Um, if you want to talk to me about the intricacies of how to understand verse four and what he's talking about, I'd love to talk to you about that after the service. For our point right now, he's especially thinking of what the priest is going to use for the day of atonement, okay? So there's a golden altar with incense, there's the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and tablets of the covenant. So, what, so what's going on? Well, it's just, it's the most holy place. Why is everything gold? It's to signify the value of God, the treasure of God. Uh, the altar and the incense, you've got to alter this incense, and it symbolizes the prayers of the people, especially the priests for the people. Um, and you've got the Ark of the Covenant with the urn, with the manna. Why why was the manna kept in there? Remember, manna was this miraculous way God provided for his people. So it's this remembrance in the holy place. God provides for his people. Or or you've got Aaron's staff that budded. What was that about? Do you remember? There's different people who claim to be priests, and Aaron's staff budded. he's, He's the priest who sets up his priests for his people. God does. God sets up his priests. The tablets of the covenant, two of them, one for us, one for him. Remembering we're in, a, we're in a, a serious relationship with our God, and it comes with stipulations. I agree to be this. You agree to be that. Remember the Mosaic covenant. I'll be your God. You'll be my people if you keep this law. So on those tablets written, the Ten Commandments, it's all right there in this Holy of Holies. And then above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. So the mercy seat is this golden lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It's a mercy seat because that's where the blood's gonna be sprinkled. It's the idea of propitiation. The only way you're coming near to me is through the sacrificial death of a substitute. And then there's the cherubim of glory. And of course, these cherubim, these these are just figures, right? Made of gold on this lid. It reminds us of something, the cherubim of glory. Um, can any of you even remember the first time you meet the, the idea of cherubim in the Bible? I started thinking about this this week. Because cherubim are these strange, terrifying, angelic beings. Where's the first time you meet them? You realize it's in Genesis? And it just, th- this just reminds us of the whole biblical storyline Just just remember with me that the simple, profound, biblical story of the world, the true story of the world, there's a holy, good God, His power and wisdom makes creation the best part of His creation, male and female made in His image, Adam and Eve. And so they're in this garden just made perfectly for them to fellowship with God, and who do they walk with every day? They walk with God, just face-to-face fellowship, And yet, very soon, the tragedy, right? The tragedy. The evil one comes and he tempts him. What's his his three-part temptation? God's not good. He won't satisfy. He's not good. Second part, his word is not true. You can't trust him. Third part, if God's not good, his word's not true, replace him. Put your hopes in something else. That's always the temptation. Adam and Eve, they bit that hook. They fell. And what did they fall into? The wages of sin is death. Yes, ultimately, it'll be physical death, it's emotional death, it's relational death, cosmic death on the earth, futility, spiritual death. That fellowship is broken. And so the first time we meet the cherubim or when Adam and Eve are cast out of that place of fellowship and the cherubim are set to guard it because the cherubim say, you can't come in anymore. You can't come back anymore. You've rebelled against a holy God. They're protecting the glory So isn't it interesting? You've got got this tension here, even just on this ark. It's the mercy seat. It's it's a way to come close. And yet yet you've got the cherubim almost saying, the way is shut. And that tension's here in this passage. So verse 5, the author says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So I'm going to follow his lead, okay? We're not going to speak in detail of all the things in the holy place and the most holy place. Briefly, we've seen the sections. You got the holy place, the most holy place. Now we're gonna see the activity. Verse six, here's the activity that's in the holy place. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. So they're, they're making sure the lamps are lit. They're making sure the bread's on the table and a host of other things. But verse 7 gets into what the author really wants to think about. He wants to think about the activity of the most holy place. So look at verse 7, chapter 9, verse 7. Into the second, only, only who? Only the high priest goes. So on so one hand, you're thinking, oh, this is amazing. Someone can go into the holy of holies. But it's also kind of disappointing if you're a normal Israelite, do you get to go into the Holy of Holies? No way. And it's, in fact, it's part of the law that if you even try that, you die. The way is shut. Only the high priest goes. And how often does he get to go? Does he just go and kick it, kick it in there? No. How often does he get to go? Once a year. Once a year. He hardly ever gets to go. And when he goes, let me tell you, it's not casual. He better not be going without, what does he take with him? Not without taking blood. Even the high priest, don't don't you think about coming in here without blood? Why? Well, first of all, he has to offer it for himself for himself you might think hey here's the high priest listen even the high priest wasn't a good enough person he wasn't a religious enough person to go into the holy of holies based on his own merit do you see that even the high priest can't cut that he's got to bring blood for his own sin for the sins of his family he's a sinner he doesn't deserve to be there he can't stay long. He can come once a year. And this is just the shadow of the real thing. Moreover, he brings in blood to sprinkle for himself and the unintentional sins of the people. Just a moment on this idea of unintentional. Uh, some people have really misused this idea as if in the Old Testament, only, only the sins you didn't know were sins could be forgiven. And that's not what this is about at all. Um, in the Old Testament, if you, if you hear about saying um, intentional sins, it really means like sin with a high hand. And the, the attitude of that, it's like sin with a middle finger. It, it's, it's, it's intentionally, blatantly, blasphemously, blasphemously rebellious. It's saying, God, I'm against you. I'm against your ways. I don't care. I don't want you. For those kind of sins, there's no forgiveness, why is there no forgiveness? Because there's no repentance. There's no repentance. Unintentional sins, it's not like, oops, or oh, I didn't know that was a sin. No, unintentional sins are all the millions of things faithful believers do when they sin against God and their neighbor in motive, thought, word, and deed. They're real sins. They're rebellious sins, but they're not sins lacking entirely in repentance. It's just the reality that, We're sinful people. So you've got the two places, the holy place, the most holy place. You've got the two activities, the priest and the holy place. Only the high priest, only once a year, only with blood in the most holy place. Now look at verse 8. I love this. I think it's amazing. By this. What is the this he's talking about in verse 8? The nature of the tabernacle and the reality of how only the high priest can go in once a year and only for a little bit with blood. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates. This is the way the author of Hebrews is always working. You read the Old Testament, who's talking? God's talking. And what is God talking to you about? By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet Opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. The Holy Spirit is showing you that in the way of the Mosaic covenant and its tabernacle, you could not really get into God. The way is still shut, it's not yet opened. And as long as we're rolling in the age of the Mosaic Covenant, it's not yet opened. So you hear what he's saying to his audience. They're thinking, hey, let's, let's leave Jesus and go back to the Mosaic Covenant. And he's saying, why do you want to go back to the way where the way is not open to God? Going back to the Mosaic Covenant and its worship is not the fix. It's actually telling you of your problem Jesus came to fix. We can't get in. So what does this mean for you, this verse in verse 8? I don't know how many of you are trying to go back to uh, the tabernacle worship of the Mosaic Covenant. That's going to be difficult. Um, You know, on on the hill where the temple used to be today, I believe there's a mosque And the genealogical records are lost. And so finding a a new Davidic king and some new Levitical priests and going to offer sacrifices in the right place in the right way, that's impossible. It's impossible. And I think that's on purpose in the sovereignty of God. But you know how you might be doing this? You might be trying to be right with God by being good or religious or moral enough on your own. That's how you might be trying this. You might be trying to say, my problem's not that bad, or I can fix it. It's it's the old questions people share in the gospel ask a lot. It's a decent question. If you died tonight, what would happen to your soul? Where would you go? Where would you go? If you believe in a transcendent God, the God of the Bible, are you going to go into his presence if you die tonight? And then the question, Why? Why? And how many people, how many people, even people who've been to church over and over again, even people who've read the Bible, are you gonna gonna die tonight and be with the Lord tonight? And they say, yeah, why? And it's gonna be something like this. I went to church. What? I, I I was a nice person. What? In the shadow of this idea that the high priest of Israel can only go into the Holy of Holies once a year and not without blood. So he can, he, with trepidation, he's going into the shadow of the real thing with fear. And just for a moment, and then for us to say, no, I'm totally going into the presence of God on my own goodness. No, you are not. No, you are not. We cannot get in. The Holy Spirit is showing us the problem of the separation between a holy God and sinful people. There's a second thing the Holy Spirit is showing us. Look at the end of verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered. What arrangement? The arrangement of the Mosaic Covenant. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. You see that in verse nine? What can the worship of the Mosaic covenant not do? It cannot change your heart. It cannot comfort your heart. It it cannot get you where salvation needs to hit you most fundamentally. Remember where the problem is? Do you remember where the problem is? It was the people saying to Jesus, hey, follow the traditions. Wash your hands in a certain way when you eat. And Jesus said, do you think it's, from, do you think it's the stuff that's from outside that defiles us? Do you think it's religious externalism that's going to save you? Your problem is your heart. It's what you love. It's how you process life. It's how you live. It's what comes out of you because of the nature of your heart. Mosaic covenant worship, the law. The, the priest going into the room, it doesn't hit the heart. It doesn't change your heart. Verse 10, it only deals with food and drink and various washings. We can't change our hearts. It can't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. What does it mean to have a perfected conscience? I think it points to two things. I think it points to number one, to know that you are actually and completely forgiven of all your sin. A perfected conscience means the assurance that you are actually and completely forgiven of all your sin. And you, and you think of the symbolism of the Mosaic Covenant here. Um, how often does a high priest go in there? Once a year. So what's the promise there of your sins? Your sins of last year are forgiven. and now you gotta go a whole year. How many times have you sinned in the last six months? Six days? Six hours? I'm looking forward to next year when my sins get forgiven. It's not nearly the same assurance, is it? Can't perfect the conscience. Also, a a part of the perfected conscience, because this is in light of the new covenant we looked at this last week. There's three aspects to the new covenant, remember? You'll know God. You'll know you're totally forgiven. He won't treat you according to your sins, and he will write his law on your heart. As you know God and you know you're forgiven, to have a perfected conscience means the desires of your heart are now changing. You love God in his ways according to his word. The Mosaic Covenant couldn't do that. It could make you right with God externally, right? So you could participate in this. It didn't hit your heart. There's a reason I can't get all the way in. I've messed it up. I failed. I failed again. I failed again. The reason I keep messing it up, I don't love the right thing. So you, it, can't, it can't perfect your conscience. So you see the problems the Holy Spirit is showing you in this text? You can't get all the way in because your conscience isn't perfected. You got a heart problem. You're guilty, and you're broken. But the Holy Spirit is saying something else as well. Did you see what he said at the end of verse 10? Um, Verse 10, these things only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of what? reformation. So the Holy Spirit's saying something else too. There's going to be a new time and a new age. There's going to be a time when all of this is reformed. The age of the Mosaic covenant will end, and one day the promises the Mosaic covenant makes will be fulfilled And these problems will be rectified. I think that's the best way to understand this word, Reformation, rectified. So it means these promises, they're going to be refined. They're going to be purified. Things are going to be made right. Things are going to be perfected. We're going to get where we were supposed to be. And when does that happen? When's the time of Reformation? The answer's right here, verse 11. This is one of those great phrases in the Bible. Every once in a while you get one, right? Ephesians 2. We were dead, we were lost. And it says, but God, right? And, and here's one right here. Th- these things in the Mosaic Covenant, they, they, can't, they can't perfect our conscience, but, but look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared, when Christ appeared, and look, he appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Here we go. Why did he come? Why did he come? Why was he born? He was born to be your perfect priest. My perfect priest. He was born to bring the good things that that have come. He was born to bring the new covenant, the new and better way to come to God. And as our author has shown us, it's a better covenant on better promises. Let's just remember some of the ways Jesus is so infinitely better. Uh, last week, we looked at how Jesus does his priestly work in the better tent. So where does the high priest of Israel work? In the earthly tabernacle. It's beautiful. It's according to the pattern. Um, you got the holy place, the most holy place once a year. But what did, what did our author say last week? It's a shadow of the reality. It's just a, it's a copy of the real thing. Where does Jesus do his work? The tent made without hands, when, when authors say without hands, that means it's, it's the real thing, it's the ultimate thing, it's God's reality. Jesus does his priestly work seated at the right hand of the Father in the very presence of God. Better tent. There's no Levitical priest up in there working there. It's Jesus. Better tent, better sacrifice. Oh, a better sacrifice. You can, you can kind of see the, the writer of Hebrews, his mind working. You see it in some of the Psalms. This question, you, you know, some thoughtful Israelite must have wondered how on earth does the blood of a stupid goat help me with my sin problem? How does, how does me killing that bull or the priest killing the bull, this unwilling bull, how does that help my heart problem? And that's a really good question. Part of the answer is it doesn't. The other part of the answer is it's showing you, it's getting you on the way to who does. And now you think of how Jesus was a better sacrifice. I mean, I don't know how this worked. The high priest or whoever's working for him goes out to the corral. It's time. Pick the goat, pick the bull. You know, you'll never, have, you'll never have a bull going, I'll go. I'll go for these people. Take me. Never once. I don't know if they knew it was coming or not. Maybe they all ran to the corner of the corral. But Then you think of Jesus. You know, the, the offerings in the temple had to be spotless, had to be perfect. Well, how were they spotless? This minute was a healthy animal that looked really good, right? You gave, it your, most, you gave your most valuable. How is Jesus spotless? It's not in how he looked. And you think of his heart. And Hebrews has shown us so much of this. Never once sinned. By the way, let's just get that straight. I saw a poll or something about how all these church people don't realize that Jesus never sinned. Let's just make it straight right now. Jesus never sinned. And that ought to blow you away with how majestic he is. Do you know how hard that is? Well, you should. <laughs> Are you awake to how hard that is? He never sinned, submissive to the Father. And yet he's full of not just truth, we read it today, full of grace and truth. You know, in my sort of holier moments, isn't can anyone relate to this? In my sort of holier moments... But it shows you how I'm not holy, I am. I'm tempted to be more self-righteous to others who aren't as holy in the same way as I am. You ever feel self-righteous when you're like, ooh, I've, I'm holy in this aspect. Woe to you who are not, you know? What was Jesus' heart for his people in the midst of his utter holiness? This will just wreck you if you think about it. He's washing his disciples' feet right before they betray him. He's dying for them right after they abandon him. He's loving them, loving us, no matter what, until the end. Sinful, rebellious people. Not only that, he was a willing sacrifice. He did, unlike any boat or goat could or would, he did say, I'll go for them. He did say, I'll go for you. And he went, Luke says it, he set his face towards Jerusalem. Or Hebrews says it. Look at Hebrews 12.2. We're told to look here, Hebrews 12.2. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. His joy is bringing his brothers and sisters to glory. He went willingly in his heart for his people and his own holy perfection. He is the better sacrifice. (laughs) Unbelievable. He gave up himself also a better entrance a better entrance you know, how does the high priest walk into the holy of holies supposedly right you got to tie a rope around his ankle put some bells on him in case he just can't handle the holiness he's walking in there only with blood only for a little bit light the incense do the thing sprinkle it get out quick because i'm in the presence of a holy god That's going with trepidation only for a moment into the shadow. Jesus goes into the very holy presence of God and is seated at the right hand. Absolute victory. And it says he goes there once for all. So it's a sacrifice so perfect. Any thought of doing it over again is an absolute insult. It's perfect, and Jesus knew this. What did he say on the cross? It's finished. I won. I accomplished it. Vindicated and validated by the Father in his resurrection from the dead, his ascension. Better tent, better sacrifice, better entrance, better results. In the old covenant, you gotta do this over and over again every year. Every year, and every year, you still can't get in. You still can't stay. Holy, pre- The high priest goes in once a year. You got to do it again every year. Why do you have to keep doing it? Because it never actually worked. It didn't work. How many times did Jesus do it? Once for all. Once for all. And the language here in verse 12 is he secured an eternal redemption. These are precious words. Securing. What's that mean? He's got it. There's just no question. He's earned it. He's accomplished it. It's his. It's done. It's perfect. Nobody can argue with it. Nobody can defeat it. It's finished. He's secured redemption. What's redemption? In our day, it's kind of become a church word. Uh, in the, even in the first century, it was an everyday life word. Many times, if you fell on hard times and you couldn't pay your debts, you would become a slave, kind of like an indentured servant. Maybe you and your children, you become a slave, and good luck to you. There's no such thing as bankruptcy laws, all the rest. Good luck to you. You're not owned by someone else. But maybe, maybe. If you're really fortunate, you have a relative with some money or a friend with some money, and they come and they find you in your slavery, your hopelessness, and they pay your debt so that you can be set free. You know what that's called? That's called redemption. And that's what Jesus did for you. With his blood, he bought you. He secured your redemption. Jesus said this in Mark 10, 45, didn't he? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a what? A ransom for many. That's why he came. He's obtained, secured this redemption. One more word. He's obtained a what? An eternal redemption. That obviously is a very full word. What does eternal mean? Well, number one, you can't come to the end of it. You, just, you can't see the end of it. It's an endless horizon. It, you can't exhaust it. <clears throat> you, you can't pour it all out. There's always more. He's obtained an eternal redemption, which means if you belong to him, you're his forever. Bought with his blood forever between your righteousness is accomplished in him forever, his sinlessness attributed to you by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. It means you're forgiven completely, not just for the year, not just for the day. Everything past, everything present, everything future, paid for personally by the one who has bought you. God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, and that eternal life is yours because of the eternal redemption Christ has secured. And so we see a better priest in a better tent with a better sacrifice, a better entrance, and a better outcome. And that's how Jesus fixes <clears throat> the problem. Look at verse 13. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of deviled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. What's he saying there? In the external worship, all the external rules could make you fit to externally participate. God bless you. If you give just a cup of water to anyone in my name, right? Thank you. If If the external regulations make you fit for participation... And they do, right? That's how you did it in the Mosaic Covenant. Look at this phrase in verse 14. How much more? How much more? So this is an argument from lesser to the greater, right? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will what he did, what does it do for us in 14? 14. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He's healed our hearts through the cross. He's done it. He's done it. He's fixed the ultimate problem for all who will come to Him in repentance and faith. He purifies your conscience. We saw this again last week, the promise of the new covenant given him by Jeremiah. I will remember their sins no more. And we said last week, remembrance is not being, it's is not God saying, oh, I, I just forgot. No, remembrance is him treating you according to covenant promises. And he has promised to wash away all your sins and treat you as if you have never sinned. And that is justification bought for you by Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Christ stamped upon you freely as a gift through faith alone in Him. You're forgiven. You got to pause and let that that happen to you every once in a while. Christians need to ponder their sin, right? You need to ponder your sin. Heart, where have you been today? You got to ask yourself why you're so afraid, why you're so angry why you're so vindictive, why you said that, why you don't have the compassion of Christ, why the fruit of the Spirit's lacking. You gotta ask yourself, you gotta look. You gotta confess your sin. You gotta pour it out to the Lord. And then as you do that, you gotta remember the gospel reality and the gospel promise. What is God doing with each and every one of your sins, past, present, and future? It's been propitiated. It's been atoned for. It's been paid for. And you don't have to have a halfway bothered conscience, still a little bit embarrassed, as if God's doing you a favor by sweeping it under the rug. God never sweeps sin under the rug, He always deals with every sin in His holy wrath. That's terrifying, but the beauty of it is I can know that when I'm pronounced forgiven, it's because Jesus legitimately paid for my sin. <laughs> He's legitimately taken care of already. God has no more wrath to pour out for my sin because he already poured all of it out. I'm forgiven. That purifies your conscience. You got things you regret, I do. You got things you really messed up, Again, I do. My conscience needs to know I'm forgiven. In Christ, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. Moreover, as you, as we saw in the new covenant, know God, know his forgiveness, he changes your heart. Friends, the gospel is the way a heart gets changed. You can stack up every holy law in the universe against a dirty heart. It will change not. You can shine it up. Externally, the heart changes not. You know what changes the heart? The cross of Jesus Christ changes the heart. The Holy Spirit comes after the heart with the gospel. As you see both the holiness of God, your guilt and sin before God with Jesus on the cross, and the great love God has for you in Jesus there as your substitute. When you see that, you repent of your sin and trust in him because of his love, his goodness, that will change your heart and you will find new desires to love God in his ways, in new, new ways that you never had before. You go ahead and try to make yourself right with God through the law. Two things will happen to you. One, you will become incredibly prideful and self righteous. Or two, you will become incredibly insecure and crushed. Because you either have to make up a new law to pretend like you're meeting it, or you have to face the real law and realize you failed. Go to the gospel. Go to the one who met the law perfectly. Let's be honest. I need perfection, and I have it in Christ. And be forgiven, and then find in the freedom from that law of belonging to Christ, find the freedom to love God in his ways according to his word in an entirely new way. It's called the new covenant, and it's the only way to be right with God the only way jesus has done it he purifies your conscience remember there was two problems the holy spirit said one is the mosaic covenant can't purify our conscience it can't change our heart jesus does that in his cross and resurrection secondly remember the holy spirit showed us the way was shut only the holy spirit uh, the high priest can go in for a minute to the to the shadow of the real thing but now in christ the way is open and i i love this idea so much the, holy, the, the high priest of Israel can only go to the shadow once a year with trepidation, and you through Christ can go into the real thing 24-7 with boldness. Look at Hebrews 4, 16. The high priest of Israel could never say this. Let us then with what? Confidence. Draw near to where? The throne of Grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We, We walk in as beloved children to the reality when the high priest had to tremble and be there for but a moment. We march in. Why? Better priests, better promises, better covenant. It's Jesus. Wow. All right. Well, we saw the two rooms... Holy place, high place, the two problems. I need the way open. I need a new heart. And we saw Jesus, he rectifies this. He's the one. Better priest, better sacrifice, better tent, better entrance, better results, better everything. He's our great high priest. What's your response? What should be your response? Well, I hope you just ask the Lord to show you what your response ought to be. But I'll give you three ideas. Number one, Get clarity on the new regulation for worship in the holy place. Remember 9-1? Even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. And those regulations have expired. So what's the new regulation? How do you know you can be right with God and live in fellowship with Him? And the answer is no longer a what. It's now a who. Who? Who is it? It's Jesus Christ. It's Christ alone. You come to the Father through Him, through His life, His death, His resurrection, His work. He brings the new covenant. Have you repented of your sin and trusted yourself to Christ and what He has done? Have you looked to the cross? Are you His? Clarity. Second one dedication. I just bring up a verse from Romans 12. Dedication. The Apostle Paul, I'm sure you've heard this, Romans 12.1, just such a beautiful response verse to the power of the gospel. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. you see? I've seen now the gospel. That's the mercies of God. Because of the gospel, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see here, in a way, because of Christ, you become just like Christ. What was the offering Christ offered to God? It was himself as a substitute for us. Now, there's a way we're different. Do not offer yourself as a substitute for me, okay? Please no. Don't offer yourself like that. But do offer yourself. You offer your body. Why does he call it your body? Why does he say present your body as a sacrifice? Because everything you do, you're doing with your body, okay? Your whole self. Offer your whole self to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. You want to obey and glorify Jesus because of the gospel in every aspect, right? Be dedicated to him. Your mind, your heart, your deeds, your relationship, in gratitude to God, in love for God according to his word. Get clarity on the gospel, dedicate yourself to the Lord. And then the third thing, the third way to respond to this: adoration. Do you love Jesus? Today, does your heart leap at the thought of who he is and what he's done for you? I'm gonna do something a little different and I'm gonna finish my message with a poem. This was written by D.A. Carson. So I'm just gonna invite you to soak this in with me and the purpose is that we might adore our high priest. Long have I pondered the pain of the cross, wood soaked in blood, washed with tears, drenched in sweat, whips, cruel nails, crown of thorns, countless cost. Somehow this death is both promise and threat. Cascades of suffering and love shrink my pride. Silent, I'm hushed by his spear riven side. Long have I pondered the shame of the cross, jeered by the troops, by authority scorned, mocked by brigands, society's dross. Christ is abandoned, rejected, ignored. How can I focus on triumphs and fears? Here lies my maker, redeemer, and king. Long have I pondered the curse of the cross. Sinless, the Christ bears my guilt and my pain. Thundering silence, a measureless cost. God in his heaven lets Christ cry in vain. Now I can glimpse sin's bleak horror and worse. Christ dies and bears the unbearable curse. Long have I pondered the Christ of the cross. Gone is the boasting when I'm next to him. Loving the rebel, redeeming the lost. Sin's pure goodness, or Jesus' pure goodness, exposes my sin. Self is cut down by this triumph of grace. Christ's bloody cross is the hope of our race. Let's pray. Jesus, on our own, we have corrupted hearts, but you came to save us. Let us, Lord, hear the message of your word today and see the glory of our great high priest, truly the only one who can make the way into pure fellowship with you. Let us look to his perfection in our sin. Let us look to his cross in our guilt. Let us look to his resurrection and ascension in our lives today. Let us trust him and him alone to make us right with you. And let us know in him a changed heart. Let us be devoted to you, Lord Jesus, in love in gratitude. May our hearts be filled with adoration and may we live for your glory in thought, word, and deed. It's for your sake we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.